All Arthur dreamt of was taking his family on a cruise around the Bahamas, but when an accident occurred on deck, would it be concluded as a bizarre accident or foul play? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sentenced. I'm Caitlin. I'm Kara. How are you? I beat you to it. Ha, ha, ha. Way to steal my thunder. Sorry. Had to do it. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. You're wearing purple again. I am, because last time you told me I looked pretty in it, so I was actually wearing something different. I was wearing pink, and then I was like, oh, no, I can't. I look too good in purple. (laughs) Well, it's funny because we went to Target over the weekend, uh, literally yesterday, and there's this really pretty lavender dress with, like, off-the-shoulder sleeves. Ooh. And I was like, Kara was wearing purple in an episode, our last episode we recorded, and she looks so pretty. (laughs) And Robert's just like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, you guys are just far too codependent. Yeah. (laughs) Just a smidge. Um, I'll have to go to Target and take a look-see. There's a pink one that I really want. Um, it's super cute. And they they have, like, a plus-size model wearing it. Mm. But you know how Target has, like, they're more inclusive now? So yeah. So they try to make sure that all their clothes fit everybody. Yeah. So I really like the pink one. I love Target. They have this really pretty green dress, but it has, like, cutouts on the side. And that uh, wouldn't look good on me because I'm a thick girl. But... It would probably look good on you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's super cute. Any excuse to go to Target? Sign me up. I want to buy more dresses. I really want more dresses. I feel like I don't wear them often enough. Um, And I'm afraid to wear them to work because I don't know how to wear business dresses, I guess. like I wore dresses all the time when we worked together. In the summer, I lived in dresses. See, and, like, I just feel like they don't look good on me because, like, a lot of them are form-fitting, and I don't like form-fitting dresses, obviously. And so, like, if they're not form-fitting, I feel like it's too close to being, like, a summertime dress and not very professional. Oh, I mean, yeah, I guess a lot of my dresses that I wore were summer dresses. I just didn't care. No, like, they were professional, though. Like, if you put a blazer over it, it looked fine. Yeah, that's true. Like, all mine, I feel like... They're very sundressy, like maxi dresses and like oh, the floor. Okay. I have a couple of like mid-length ones, but uh, I don't I don't ever want to wear them in the office. Yeah. I don't I know. That. I'm weird about dresses. And skirts. Like I don't even wear skirts to work. I wear pants every day. Yeah. I wear scrubs. I don't want no scrubs. 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 I cool. <laughs> Nobody can say that word without me singing that song. Yeah, I feel it. Also, the song uh, Graduation by Vitamin C popped in my head earlier. (laughs) I think it's because I'm watching all of the Scream movies again so I can watch Scream 6. Oh, okay. And they remind me, obviously, of the scary movies because they parody Scream. Right. And there's that whole scene in the second one where Sydney's driving to the ma- mansion and she's singing along with the radio, and then the radio screams at her to stop singing. 
<laughs> like all my of our bra- listeners just did to us. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so my brain just like connects Scream with Scary Movie. So that's yeah. just that's just where sense. it goes. Everything is a reference. That was, yeah, Satan. That's how my brain works too. But that was my um, eighth grade graduation song. I think it was my sixth grade graduation song. And then in eighth grade, they just did the uh, the pomp and circumstance song. I forget how it goes. The the graduation, like, fancy song. Oh. It's just instruments. The Yeah. Uh, I can hear it in my head, but I can't, like, sing it. Yeah, it's like your brain and your mouth are not on the same page. <laughs> oh, how does that song go? Anyway. <laughs> well, uh, we can get right into the episode. Sorry, again, we're ranting but anyway. Anything to delay <laughs> whatever kind of depressing shit you're going to tell me. <laughs> yeah, kidding. usually. I don't know. I like, like, throwing you curveballs because, like, I feel like this one's kind of a curveball, too. Is it really? Yeah, like, I literally pick my stories and I'm like, ooh, is Kara going to like this one? Is she going <laughs> to find it interesting? Like, I don't, like... Yeah, I like I have interest in it too, but most of the time I'm like I'm reading it to you, right? Initially, and the listeners, but like you're the one reacting to it live, right. so I always pick them to make sure like you're going to find it interesting. Okay, so. well, entertain me, or I shouldn't say entertain <laughs> me. Okay. Educate me. I'm gonna butcher uh, this last name throughout this entire story because I don't know how to pronounce it. I couldn't find find like a definite pronunciation online um so we're just gonna wing it based on spelling okay arthur wayland duperalt was born on march 7th 1921 in wisconsin to ernest and jane duperalt during his early 20s he would join the navy and would travel to the south pacific during world war ii although what he saw wasn't always pretty he developed a love for the tropical waters After serving in the military, he would go on to become an optometrist and would even become known as one of Green Bay's leading optometrists. It was said that he wasn't just an optometrist, but a contact lens optometrist. I said optometrist like 17 times. So if you didn't get it by now, he's an optometrist. Okay. (laughs) Of the eyes. (laughs) And this doesn't come back later. So it's not like, it's relevant because this is his story, but like, It's still funny to me that I had to say it that many times. So fun fact about contact lenses, they were mostly made from glass until about 1939. At this point, they would be made from plastic and covered a large portion of the eye. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So like when he was working on contact lenses, he may have been working with glass, but it looks like they slowly transitioned into plastic. In 1948, plastic lenses were made to just cover the eye's cornea, and soft contact lenses wouldn't be introduced until 1971. Okay, I'm sorry, but if you were working on, like, a contact lens that covers the entire eyeball, like, I would be like, let's just wait until we have a better solution. Like, let's wait until we figure this out, like, really well before (laughs) we're, like... (laughs) I couldn't find if it was the whole eye, but definitely a larger portion than what they cover today. But think of it, like like a piece of plastic though like they weren't soft like they are now where if you like pop them they fold inside out and they like move they were either glass or hard plastic just sitting on top of your eye i don't think very many people had them at this point 
but still. What would be the, like, why, what would be the reason for wearing them, though, if it was that, I mean, like, was it just an aesthetic thing? Like, was it just for looks? Like, I think it's more so for people that have to wear, like, glasses all the time, and it is kind of a pain to wear your glasses all day long, you know? Or maybe if you worked in a job where you had to wear, like, safety yeah, goggles or something. Would, like, I don't know. or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't care. I'm, like, I don't wear my glasses enough anyway, so. Right. Definitely don't want contacts. So that's just a little fun fact about contact lenses. It wasn't clear as to when he and Jean got married, but by 1961, the two would have three children. 14-year-old Brian, 11-year-old Terry Joe, and 7-year-old Renee. During that same year, Arthur would fulfill his lifelong dream of taking his family on an island-hopping cruise in the Bahamas. Arthur took an extended leave from his practice, made arrangements for his children's school, and headed to Florida. Arthur initially wanted to purchase a boat, but he was unable to find a suitable one, so they decided to charter one instead. In Fort Lauderdale's Bahia Mar Yacht Basin, they would meet Julian Harvey. Julian is described as a Hollywood handsome. Um, Don't know exactly what that means. A Hollywood handsome, you say? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this is the 60s, so it's like... Some of the words that they use, like, I'm like, I don't think that's accurate anymore, but whatever. Um, But yeah, he was described as Hollywood handsome. Okay. Uh, Julian skippered a 60-foot, two-mast catch named the Bluebell. Julian had been living aboard the Bluebell for about four months with his wife, Mary Dean. I need to add that it seems as though Arthur fell in love with the boat, which is how he came into contact with Julian. So... From, like, the sources I read is that Arthur saw the boat and was like, that boat is perfect to take my family on this cruise. And then he found out who skippered the boat and made contact with Julian at that point. Okay. So it wasn't that he met Julian first and then saw the boat. He saw the boat and then met Julian. Okay. So a little bit about Julian Harvey. Julian was born on March 1st, 1917 in Manhattan to a single mother who also happened to be a Broadway chorus girl. Mm. I know. I was like, that's kind of cool because you and I both love Broadway. Mm -hmm. So Julian never knew his father. A few years later, his mother would remarry and this man would dote on Julian and get him anything he wanted. For his 10th birthday, he gave him his first sailboat, which started his lifelong love for sailing. When the Great Depression hit, His mother's marriage fell apart, and he was sent to live with an aunt and uncle who spoiled him rotten. He was a scrawny kid, so he threw himself into bodybuilding and ended up becoming obsessed with fitness. Which, good for him. Like, I was always a chubby kid, but, like, did I ever want to do anything about it? Absolutely not. (laughs) I was just a chunk until, like, I shed a bunch of baby weight between 7th and 8th grade. And then I got it all back, like, my sophomore year of high school, so... Did I work out? No. (laughs) Can't be bothered. (laughs) Still can't be bothered. It's too time consuming. Uh, Before enlisting in the Air Force, Julian worked as a model for the John Roberts Powers Agency. There are images that still exist showing him posing in a swimsuit, aiming a bow and arrow, looking like Cupid. Um, Julian's a, a guy, right? Correct. Okay. At some point, he was driving his first car, a Model A Ford convertible, When a wheel came off, he and his passenger managed to jump out of the car as it spun out and flipped over. Um, So he's had, like, a lot of, like, random accidents, and that was the first of a few. Oh, wow. 
Um, and this was all while he was a teenager. Oh my gosh. He went to college for a few years. Well, all of that was when he was a teenager. Now we're going to get into, like, his adult life. Okay. He went to college for a few years but didn't achieve any accolades. So in 1941, he enlisted in the Air Corps, no, now known as the Air Force. Once in the military, he would serve in World War II and the Korean War. He was medically discharged from the Korean War in 1958 with the rank of major. On April 21st, 1949, his third wife, Joanne, which I couldn't find anything on the first two wives. So Hmm. he is now 32 years old and on his third marriage. Wow. Yeah. So um, his third wife, Joanne, and mother-in-law, Myrtle, were killed in a car accident where he was the driver. Ooh. Yeah, not... Not a great start. <sighs> That's a lot for one to, I guess, bear the weight of. Well, he managed to exit the vehicle uh, before it skidded over a bridge into the bayou and walked away uninjured. Oh, okay. So I'm assuming that you're going to get into the logistics of this and whether it's yeah. been quite Okay. <laughs> cool. Both women drowned in the submerged vehicle. Julian got paid out pretty nicely from the accident. He would tell investigators that he saw the accident coming, so at the last minute, he opened the door and was thrown free. A professional diver would go down to retrieve the bodies and found all four doors to the car were locked, but the driver's side window was rolled down. So already, uh, there's a discrepancy in his story versus what the investigators found. Right. They suspected that he went down with the women and rolled the window down and left the women in the vehicle. Mind you, windows were manual at the time and not electric, so you could very easily roll a window down. Um, I think that he had the window rolled down before going down, um, if he even went into the water. It didn't really say if he was found drenched or not, but definitely. Yeah, because he could have. He could have rolled the window down, like, slowly exited, and then, I don't know, do we know if the other people had their seatbelts on or not? It doesn't say, and at the time, I mean, seatbelts, I don't think were mandatory to wear. I mean, they literally were just like, oh, just put your baby in the the dashboard, it's fine. drink a beer while you drive, too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I'm not really sure about that, but it is definitely suspicious because, like, if you think about it, if you're getting thrown out of a moving vehicle, if you open the door, you're going to get injured. Yeah. You're going to have bumps and bruises, if not, like, fractures or, like, sprains or something. Like, you'll probably hit your head. Yeah. But if you are if you slowly drive into water with a window down, you could probably easily get out of that. If the window's already down, yeah, but then it's it's hard to say because why the water's rushing into the, the water would go in so quickly. So I don't really know. It's just weird that he said he saw the accident happening, so but he had time to get out of the car, but he didn't have time to like divert the crash. Yeah. Yeah, he saw it coming, but didn't try to not have it happen and then didn't try to save the other two people in the vehicle with him. But he got out of there completely unharmed. Yeah, that's... uh, So definitely suspicious. Yeah, a little sus. It was also reported that Julian was practically unfazed by his wife and mother-in-law's deaths, so his wife's father demanded an official investigation. Julian was interviewed by a military doctor, and they concluded that he had no real empathy for others and could be dangerous. That's scary. Extremely scary. 
Sadly, investigators found no hard evidence of any criminal activity, so the matter was dropped. Julian would go on to receive a large insurance settlement from the accident. A few months after getting paid out, Julian would go on to marry his fourth wife. What? Yep, just a few months later. This reminds me of someone. Who? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I Somebody asked me about her the other day, and I was just like, I don't fucking care. She's probably on her, like, eighth husband. Yeah. Is this the same person we're talking about? Yeah. Okay, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, a few months... Sorry, I already said that. Oh, wait, no. A few months after getting paid out, Julian would go on to marry his fourth wife, a young Texas businesswoman named Jitty. And yes, that is like Titty with a J or Kitty with a J. I like how whatever. you said Titty before you said Kitty. I say the word Titty all the time. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like, if we need chicken from the store, I'll tell Robert, like, can you please get me one chicken titty? And he'll be like, how big? I'm like, just one big chicken titty or two small <laughs> chicken titties. Like, he's, it's never breast. It's always oh titty. Gosh. I have a problem. It's okay. <laughs> Way to keep it they, interesting. <laughs> listen, we have fun here. We do. They would remain married for three years, but rarely saw each other. Three months after they were married, Julian was sent to Korea and flew 114 combat missions. Whoa. Which is a lot. He returned in 1953, and he and Jitty quickly divorced. <sighs> Within, Yeah, I know. Shocker. Within a year, he married his fifth wife, ah. Georgiana. <laughs> is he disclosing that to all of these people that he's been married this many times? I mean, like, how soon can you even get a divorce? Because I feel like, like that whole process takes a minute. Maybe it takes like, longer now than it used to, but... I feel like, like... I guess this is all happening in, like, the late 40s, early 50s. I said the 60s a minute ago, but it's before that. Um, I feel like in the 50s, if it was the man filing for divorce, it would be like, eh, just sign this piece of paper. You're good. Probably. Because um, we'll see here that it gets a little tricky. So, he was out of the military at this point, so he purchased a 68-foot yawl named Tor- Torbatros. Torbatros? Um and it's a yawl and not a yacht. So a yawl is like a fancy sailboat. So it has a sail and a mast mm, and everything. Okay. Whereas a yacht would How many be feet? like 68. Okay. So That's big. pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Less than a year later, while Julian was on the water, the Torbatross sank in Chesapeake Bay after ramming into the submerged wreckage of an old World War I battleship, the USS Texas. Okay, so he can't drive or sail, <laughs> but he can fly planes. <laughs> well, it was strongly suspected that the collision was not accidental. Yeah, I was... Several know. witnesses claim he had circled the wreckage twice and deliberately ran into it. Ew. Despite this, he would still receive an insurance payment of $14,258, which is equal to about $112,000 today. So, a big chunk of cash. I know where this story is going, and it's, I'm already <laughs> frustrated. I know. He used that money to purchase another boat, an 81-foot luxury yawl, the Valiant. So he's just upgrading, I guess. In 1958, Georgiana filed for divorce on the grounds of extreme mental cruelty. The two were in the midst of an alimony fight when Julian was out on the Valiant in the Gulf of Mexico when the boat mysteriously caught fire and sank. 
Is there like a limit to how many insurance <laughs> claims people can have like in their lifetime? I feel like we I, should be putting a cap on these things. I don't know. Julian escaped unharmed yet again and received a settlement amount of about $40,000, which I couldn't see if that was $40,000 in today's money or $40,000 in 1950s money. That's got to be 1950s money because a a boat is going to cost you, a boat of that magnitude is going to cost you way more than $40,000. So if it was in 1958, then that would be equal to about $400,000 today. Ooh, that's a lot. Yeah. By 1961, he started skippering boats for charter parties. During that summer, he entered an arrangement with pool contractor named Harold Pegg, the owner of the Bluebell. Julian and his sixth wife, Mary Dean, whom he had just married, would live aboard the boat and crew it for chartered trips. So they made an arrangement with the owner of the Bluebell that they were going to live on the boat and that they were going to sail it for all these trips, and then they would get a portion of the salary. Um, So the owner of the boat would get a portion, and then they would get a portion for doing the trips and everything. Mm. We are now back to where we left off. On November 8th, 1961, Julian and Mary Dean would set sail with the Duperalt family out of Fort Lauderdale. The cruise was supposed to last one week in the Bahamas. So, now we get into the, the meat of the story. On November 13th, a lookout on the Gulf Lion, an oil tanker set for Puerto Rico, uh, spotted a small wooden lifeboat drifting in the open sea. On board the dinghy was Julian Harvey and the corpse of a little girl in an oversized life jacket. Oh my gosh. This turned out to be the body of Renee Duperalt. <sighs> yeah. And she was the youngest. I believe she was seven. No. Are you serious? Yeah. That is tiny. A baby. Yeah. Like, it's just, uh, it's so frustrating. Julian was rescued and quickly told his story to Time Magazine. Time Magazine would call the story a tale of flaming horror. This was Julian's story. So I'm going to tell you Julian's story. When I'm done with it, I'll tell you that it's the end of it. That way we can move on to the next thing. On the night of November 12th, around 11 p.m., the Bluebell encountered a sudden tropical squall. A powerful gust snapped the mast in two, and a 50-foot length came crashing down, piercing the deck. So the mast is what holds the sail right it snapped in half the piece that snapped off came plummeting towards the deck of the ship and pierced it pierced through it when it pierced the deck it ruptured the fuel lines and caused the boat to burst into flames julian single-handedly fought the fire with fire extinguishers while his wife and passengers retreated to the stern by that point the boat was sinking While everyone jumped into the water, Julian launched the dinghy, jumped into the water, and lifted himself into the lifeboat. Once in the boat, he made a desperate attempt to find his wife and the Duperalt family. He shouted into the darkness, but no one answered. Which, I just have to add, if you just jumped into water and you heard somebody yelling for you, you're obviously going to yell back. Yeah. Like, it's just, I don't know. Anyway. He finally came upon Renee floating in the water face down. He brought her onto the lifeboat, but she was already dead. The others were nowhere to be seen. That was Julian's story. So he was chartering this ship, right? Yeah. 
Okay, so... He didn't, he didn't own this one. Right, but if he was the captain of his ship, then it's his responsibility to make sure everyone else is safe besides himself. Correct. But he launched the dinghy, and he jumped in it as soon as possible. Okay. Yep. Within 48 hours of Julian's rescue, he was back in Miami, and the Coast Guard began their investigation. Julian shut up to his interrogation in an expensive new sports jacket, matching pants, and an open-collared shirt, trying to look as suave as possible. Yeah. It was also reported that he was awfully chipper for someone who had just lost his new wife because, again, they were relatively newlyweds. They had just been, they would only been together about four or five months at this point, so not even six months of being together. Jeez. Throughout his interrogation, he remained calm and never deviated from his original story. Since there were no witnesses, police had to take his word, even with the fact that the lookout in a nearby lighthouse saw no signs of a blazing boat, while other experienced seamen reported that it would be nearly impossible for a broken mast to puncture the deck of a boat. Hmm. So you have all these people already that are just like, one, we didn't see a boat that was in flames off the coast and two it would be impossible for the mass to pierce the deck which makes sense it's just falling it's not being like forcefully thrown into the boat right like it's just snapping in half falling which that already would be really difficult for that to happen right like boats are made like very like I grew up sailing like my grandparents were expert sails and sailors and they would, like, sail around the world and stuff. And so I grew up, like, on sailboats. Like, that that kind of thing doesn't just happen. No. As Julian wrapped up his questioning, a Coast Guard official came bursting into the room with news of a survivor that had just been found at sea. Oh, shit. Julian reacted with a forced smile stating, why, that's wonderful, to the officers in the room. Without saying anything else, he rushed out of the interrogation room. The person found in the water was recovered by a Greek freighter named the Captain Theo. A girl was found floating on a cork life raft, floating alone in the ocean. As the ship got closer, they were able to photograph the girl floating, which I will share on Instagram because it is very harrowing. Like, this raft, I have to explain it, it's like a net. It's not like a boat by mm-hmm. any means. It's literally like like if you took um a pool noodle and made it into like an oval. Okay. And I know put what some yeah. put some fish net underneath okay. it. Okay. That's kind of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Like just a giant net. That makes sense. So she's in the water. Like she's not like dry by any means. Like she's yeah. in the water at this point. Rose got more than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they both could have fit on that door. Okay, did I'm you watch saying. the Nat Geo special? Like, no, but I think they both could have fit, but wouldn't it have sunk? Yeah, they both could have fit, but then, like, it would have just made it heavier, so then, like, they both would have been under the water more. They did, so if you watch the Nat Geo special, they do, like, all these different variables that 
could have played a part in it and why like Jack technically wouldn't have been able to survive. She was also wearing a wool coat and like they, they had these two people around the same age. They were wearing the exact same clothes that Jack and Rose were wearing. Like she was wearing the coat and like he was just wearing the life vest. And so somehow that coat was actually keeping her warm. So if Jack were to get on the raft as well, then like not only would it go it would sink deeper. They would both be wet. Like he was already like, since he didn't have the coat on, he was already reaching hypothermia. And they even tried like taking their life jackets off and putting it underneath the raft. And like that didn't work. So see, I don't remember Jack wearing a life jacket. And what always would bother me is I would get pissed that she was on the fucking door and she wouldn't give him the life jacket. Because I don't think he was wearing one. Maybe he wasn't. Was. Maybe it was when they did the Nat Geo. Um, maybe they took her life jacket off and put it on there. Because I think you're right. I don't think he was wearing one. I always after just, when she lets go of him, he's just like. So. Yeah. I always just wanted her to take the life jacket off and put it on him. And then he could just like float behind her. Whether he survived or not, at least you would have gotten to like bury him and say goodbye to him. Yeah. Because his hand would have just frozen on her ankle. That's true. Like, I don't know. <laughs> My, like, morbid ass. Like, I'm just, like, I still wanted him to die, but it, like, <laughs> I didn't want him to die. Aww. I wanted Cal to die. Fuck Cal. Yeah, that's, that's, that was, like, my favorite childhood movie. I had, like, the framed poster and everything, and I would, like, coordinate dances in my room to, like, this Celine Dion song. With, that's like, hilarious. <laughs> with, like, my blue heart-shaped necklace. And I would, like, nice. make my parents, like, come watch my dance. <laughs> so i always made my barbies like reenact the scene where she's like draw me like one of your french girls so my poor like naked ass barbie is just laying there <laughs> i'm like nobody better walk in here right now because this is suspicious <laughs> oh my god that is so good oh. uh, uh once aboard the ship they placed her on a bunk the girl was emaciated dehydrated and sunburnt and she was barely able to stay conscious while the captain of the ship questioned her. She was able to get out that she was on the bluebell and that her name was Cherry Doe Duperalt before slipping into a coma. Oh, shit. And how, of, how old was this one? Um, She was 11. Let me go to the top of my notes. Hold on. She's 11. Okay. The captain of the ship sent a telegraph to the Coast Guard that read, picked up blonde girl brown eyes from a small white raft, suffering exposure and shock. She was then helicoptered to Miami's Mercy Hospital, where hordes of journalists waited for the arrival of the Sea Waif, which is what the press would go on to name her. By November 20th, just five days after she was picked up, she was strong enough to undergo interrogation by the Coast Guard. Her story was drastically different than Julian's. This is Terry Joe's story. On the night of the tragedy, she had gone to her bunk around 9 p.m. Sometime later, she was woken up by screaming and stamping, which I think she means stomping, like somebody like running around, like mm -hmm. stampering. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. She thought it was her brother's voice crying out for their father. She snuck out of her bunk and found her mother and brother lying motionless on the floor, of the main cabin with blood pooling around Oh, my heads. God. I just got full body chills. Yeah, it's it's so tough because it's like no child should ever no. see anything like this. She worked her way up the stairs to the main deck and found more blood near the cockpit, but didn't see anyone. 
Out of nowhere, Julian came rushing towards her in a fury, screaming at her to get down there and shoved her down the stairs. Terry Jo was so terrified that she just went back to her bunk. She recalled hearing a sloshing sound on deck and thought that Julian was probably washing off the blood. The smell of oil came into the room with water, and then Julian appeared in the doorway, clutching a rifle. Terry Joe said it seemed like a long time, but he was just standing there, staring at her, before leaving her alone in the dark. The water continued to rise until it was touching the top of her mattress. Realizing the boat was going to sink, she made her way back to the cockpit. She found Julian and asked him if the boat was sinking, to which he shouted, Yes. He then dove overboard and swam to his dinghy. Terry Joe was abandoned, but remembered there was a small cork and canvas webbing raft on top of the main cabin. She undid the knots and scrambled onto the raft. She didn't know why the boat sank, but said that the mast was fully intact and there were no signs of a fire or any tropical storm. That what? was Terry Joe's story. So drastically different than right. Julian's. And it's so heartbreaking because, like, she's just this 11-year-old girl trying to figure out what's going on. And there's just this man who is a complete stranger to her. She's only known him for, like, a couple days. Telling her that the boat's going down. And he's just like, bye. And leaps into the water and saves himself. Like, the one person that she's supposed to be able to go to in case of an emergency. And he just right was the perpetrator of all this. And, like, it's also really creepy that he's just, like, standing in the doorway with a rifle. And then leaves her there. Yeah. Like, she never said he pointed it at her or anything like that. So, very bizarre. That is so... Terry... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's so messed up. But she had the wherewithal. Like, she had it in her to, like... I, I mean, it just sounds like her, survive, her survival skills kicked in. Well, and it's like, I wonder if it's because she was 11 and a little older... So she was able to, like, I don't know, because the youngest sister didn't survive. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if he killed the mother and the son because the son was 14. So if he's a big enough kid, he can fight back. Right. So I wonder if he killed them because they were more, like, in a position to defend themselves. Right. Whereas Terry Joe was only 11. So maybe he was like, oh, she's going to die anyway. I'm just going to leave her here. Like, she won't then, be able to get out of this. Right, and then the youngest daughter had no signs of, like, physical trauma. So I wonder if she was alive when the boat sank and he did actually just find her floating in the water. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. Terry Joe's account confirmed the belief that everyone was feeling that Julian was lying. The day Julian got done with his interrogation, so the same day that it was announced that they had found Terry Joe. He left the Coast Guard hearing room and went to the Sandman Hotel on Biscayne Boulevard and checked under the name, excuse me, checked in under the name John Monroe. Within the next 24 hours, he wrote a brief suicide note that read, I'm a nervous wreck and I just can't continue. I'm going out now. I guess I either don't like life or don't know what to do with it. He included that he wished to be buried at sea. He placed the note on the center of the desk, left a $10 bill on his pillow for the maid, and went into the bathroom. With a double-edged... Uh, this is going to get really graphic, so... Okay. Um, I kind of like, figured this is where it was heading. And then, like, also suicide. Like, I know some people don't want to hear about it, but if you don't want to hear about it, skip forward, like, 20 seconds. 
With a double-edged razor blade, he cut his left thigh down to the bone, dabbed his own blood on the walls like a finger painting. He then slashed his ankles, wrists, forearms, and throat. His suicide was so brutal that police suspected this was actually a murder posed to look like a suicide. Oh my gosh. Like, cutting your thigh to the bone? And he's like a fitness freak, so you know that's all muscle. Yeah. Like, ooh. Like, when I was typing it, it made me feel so weird. Yeah, I Because I'm like, you're doing that to yourself. Yeah. Like, somebody else isn't doing that to you. You're doing it. I know. I cut myself shaving, and it's like, do I need to take the day off? I don't know. (laughs) Cutting yourself shaving is the worst feeling ever. Oof, my leg's hurting from, like, the one spot that I did it one time, like, really bad. And And it wouldn't stop bleeding. Yeah. And then it's like, I've been doing this for over 20 years. How do I still not know how to do this? I refuse to buy Bic razors. Oh, those are the worst. Because I was in, like, high school and all I had were Bic razors. And I just went a little... I'm getting, like, so, like, like tense, like, talking about it. But, yeah. Anyway, we're done talking about it because I'm going to throw up probably. (laughs) Friends of Julian tried to say that he was so distraught by the loss of his wife, Mary Dean, and he couldn't go on without her. Mm. Which I don't believe. No. Investigators, however, did not buy this. They believed the rescue of Terry Joe was the reason Julian killed himself. He finally realized the jig was up and all his lies were going to catch up to him. It was later discovered that before the Bluebell set sail, he had taken out a $20,000 life insurance policy on Mary Dean's life, which is equal to about $200,000 today. Also, when he was rescued and returned to Miami, Harold Pegg, who was the owner of the Bluebell, saw deep scratches on Julian's hand. When he asked what they were from, Julian claimed they were from wire cuts, but Harold said he knew fingernail scratches when he saw them. Oh, my gosh. Which, Harold, why do you know fingernail scratches? Yeah, that's weird. I, maybe, always, I thought that was really like weird. Maybe for, like, a good reason. Like, maybe for, like, a romantic reason. I, I was going to say a brown reason. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought that, too. I was like, maybe, like, but you're not digging in. He said these were deep. What did Harold do again? He was a contractor, a pool contractor. So it's not like he was an investigator and he could have been like, yep, I know fingernail scratches because I do that for my job. Yeah, maybe he just gets into some like gnarly bar fights or something. We're just just going to think it's something. Yeah, he watched a lot of Dateline. Investigators came to the conclusion that Julian set out to kill his wife that night and he may have been caught in the act by one of the Duperaults, and so he decided to kill them all. I I think that's definitely realistic, uh, that he was probably planning to, like, make Mary Dean disappear. Um, so he took care of her. And then it is possible that maybe one of the children or one of the adults saw him or something. It's just hard because the boat did sink. Um, so the only bodies recovered were seven-year-old Renee Mm -hmm. and then Terry Joe as a survivor. It's just weird because, like, he could have done, if it was just his wife, like, he could have done it just, like, when he was alone with her. Like, why did he need there to be other people there? Maybe as witnesses to be like, oh, yeah, like, they never fought. They were, like, perfectly happy, da 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 
Because, like, he could have been like, oh, she fell overboard. I guess. It just seems like there's too many variables in there for it to be, like, a solid alibi. Like, like what if someone, like, walked in on him, like, in the act or something? Like, I mean, I guess yeah. maybe that's what happened. And they, that's... It's, it's difficult with cases like this because, like, we know who did it. We know why he did it. But we don't know how... Because, like, Arthur and uh, Mary Dean's bodies were never recovered. So we don't know if they were shot. Mm -hmm. Or even the mother and brother. The only evidence we have is that they had blood pooling around their head. And that's from what Terry Joe saw. So it's like, we don't know if that was from being hit, from being shot. Because she didn't say she heard a shot. So we we will never know. Well, that's horrible. Awful. Like, I just, it's heartbreaking. In the last week of November 1961, Terry Joe was released from the hospital and flown back to Green Bay to be raised by relatives. At this time, mental health wasn't a priority, so her new guardians built a wall of silence around her and refused to speak about what she went through. Terry Joe eventually changed the spelling of her name from T-E-R-R-Y to T-E-R-E, um, and I think she dropped the Joe from her name. I think she just went by Terry. Okay. In the years, I'm still going to refer to her as Terry Joe just to avoid mm-hmm. confusion. In the years after the events, she was subject to emotional turmoil and a few marital crises. Terry Joe was eventually able to put to be put into contact with some great resources and would go on to live a fulfilling life. She remained out of the public eye until 2010 with the publication of a memoir called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, which was co-authored by psychologist Richard Logan. In her book, Terry Jo reveals that in 1999, she agreed to undergo a psychological interview while under the influence of the sedative sodium amytal. Hmm. While in this state, she was able to unlock suppressed memories and details of that night on the Bluebell. Details included the pajamas her brother was wearing and a bloody knife next to his body. (gasps) So most likely both of them were killed with a knife. God. But still, it's not very clear. Uh, none of the details revealed any more events from that night, just minor descriptive details. Mm-hmm. People were left to ponder as to why Julian didn't murder her that night, but we will never know. Terry Jo survived the most horrifying ordeal imaginable. Although she may not have witnessed specific acts, she still came across her brother and mother's bodies and has to live with that every day. Terry Jo had studied to be an x-ray tech, but had a hard time coping with her patients' traumas. Mm. She would go on to attend the University of Wisconsin's Gre- University of Wisconsin Green Bay and graduated with a bachelor's degree in cultural geography. She had a successful career as a water management specialist for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources for over 14 years. Hmm. And just to end things on a lighter, happier note, Cherry Joe celebrated her 73rd birthday on February 9th, 2023. Aww. She lives with her husband, Ron Fassbender, in Kewanee, Wisconsin. The two are happily married and are enjoying being retired. Altogether, they have six children, three from Terry's past relationships and three from Ron's. Okay. The two That's also have... Bunch. I know, right? <laughs> the two also have five grandchildren. Despite her past traumas, Terry Jo has never considered herself a victim, but rather a survivor. Wow. So that is the tale of Terry Jo D. 
super alt. That is, that's a crazy story. Yeah, I was like, I could probably read this to you in a way that I'll be like, what? Julian did it. But I was like, no, we're just going to make it obvious. from the movie. <laughs> Like, I, it's always difficult because it's like, he was obviously motivated by money. Yeah. And so he's killed one wife before. And it sucks because like this is in the 60s. So it's like we don't have Google. We don't have background checks that we could just pull up on our phones quickly on people to find right. out like all this stuff. And even still, like something like that probably wouldn't have come up. Like maybe a news article. Right. But not much. Yeah, because I mean, typical accidents like that unfortunately happen kind of all the time. So. But I will say if this were modern times, like at least um, his third wife, Joanne's father, could have been like all over the media being like, don't trust this man. Mm-hmm. He's He killed my daughter. He killed her mother. It wasn't clear if the parents were still together or not. I didn't really know, but still. Yeah, I feel like we have more resources now to kind of tell us who people are. Of course, people still can hide it pretty well, unfortunately, but. Oh, when Robert and I started dating, so like my dad, um, my stepdad is really good about looking up people. Mm -hmm. So anytime I date somebody, like I always knew he Googled them because he would ask me like subtle questions about them. And I think he would, like, look up background checks. I don't really know. That's really funny. Because <laughs> when I was dating my ex, my dad was like, did you know that he was arrested for, like, having marijuana on him? And I was like, yes. How <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, like, I, when Robert and I started dating, I Googled his name. And I found, like, really old posts from, like, a fish enthusiast board this is back when he used to have a fish tank and he was like oh my god commenting on it but it was old like it was from like 2012 or something that's really funny but i found it and i was like hey did you used to belong to this board and he's like yes you psycho like why are you googling me (laughs) so yeah that's awesome i love that but anyway well that's all i have for you today well, thank you for that story. That was, um, man, I mean, I just hate that that guy got away with so much. Um, and it's an unfortunate end as well, because, of course, you know, suicide is never the answer to anything. Um, but I guess, you know, we just take these stories and try to learn from them as much as we can. Yeah, and it sucks because he definitely would have been caught. Like, there was a witness. Like, Mm -hmm. And I feel like, too, though, that they would have been like, oh, well, you're taking a child's word for it. So he might have gotten away with it. Oh, man, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's, there, there was too much. Like, too much of a pattern. Too much, like, too many insurance claims. Yeah, but this is also 1961, so it's like, do they really have records of all that? That they probably could not. They would probably have to go to each individual like county or state or whatever. And that that's they if they knew about it. Yeah, true. like a lot of a lot of detectives at that time probably wouldn't have thought to go to like this county that he lived in and see like if he took out any claims because this was significantly different than any of the claims that he had done before. He had never gotten a life insurance claim. He'd gotten payouts from 
One was from the government for the one boat that he crashed into the USS Texas. Mm-hmm. And the other one was for the car, like the car insurance, not life right. insurance. So, still, it sucks because we didn't have, like you said, the resources that we have now. Yeah. And it sucks when children are involved. It's oh, like it's always. It's one thing to, like, kill an adult, but it's always something different when you kill a child or a pet or an elderly person. Right. Agreed. Not that you should kill adults at all. But no, you shouldn't kill anyone. Especially, like, parents who were just trying to give their kids, like, an awesome vacation. Ugh. Like, fuck you. Yeah. And also, like, the way he went out was very brutal. I'm glad he did it to himself. Yeah, it's it's bizarre because... I couldn't do that. No. Like, I wonder if he was heavily intoxicated or inebriated or something. I was wondering that when you were mentioning, like, him being on the boat and, like, being in the doorway with the rifle and not, but not doing anything. Like, he, it it just sounds sloppy to me. Yeah, it's really weird. Like, people were really questioning why he let her live and why he didn't just shoot her at that moment. Yeah. But it's like, we can't dwell on those things. Right. Because we're never going to know. And I hope... Terry doesn't dwell on those things because oh my gosh, and I'm sure she does. Like, I can't imagine what she went through, but she's a survivor. I'm happy that she has children and a loving husband. They've been married over over 13 years because their Facebook says 2010, but that's as far back I think as you can go with Facebook for Mm, some reason. Really. Yeah, like, I think because when he added it, it was like, oh, got married August 21st, 2010. But sources said that they'd been married long before that. Huh. So, I don't know. Okay. Anyway. Well, thank you all for listening. Yeah, guys. Thanks for joining us on this one. And thank you for being you and telling the story. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for being you. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. (laughs) No, thank you, Kara. <laughs> well, guys, don't forget to follow us on Instagram um, at SentencePod. You can also donate on the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash SentencePod. Um, Facebook is also SentencePod. And if you want to email us, you can do so at SentencePod at gmail.com. So if ever you want to reach us, just type in SentencePod and you'll probably get there. Yes, and don't forget to leave us a five-star rating um, so that we can continue to bring you these episodes. Yes, we're very excited. Um, Still loving doing this. It's been a lot of fun. So we will see you all in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.